Well, good morning. I thought we'd do a little series on evangelism for a couple weeks over the summer. And uh, uh, so we're going to be talking about the grand invitation. Uh, the invitation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as we begin this series today, we'll be in the book of Matthew. We'll be jumping around a little bit, but Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. I often ask myself, what kind of impact are we having here in this really godless part of the country? (laughs) Are we having any impact um, with our faith, with our church ministries? I'm I'm really uh, burdened in my heart that we would see more people come to faith in Christ. And we know that that happens through the faithful teaching of his word, and we do that faithfully. But really, for more than 35 years in ministry now, I've prayed that God would somehow use myself, use others to further the work of Christ, to lead people to to salvation in Christ. Throughout those years, I've gone to conferences, I've gone to seminars, I've done all these different things that are trying to tell you how to do this. Um, But it's really not rocket science. It's pretty basic, and um, I'm sure we all pray for those around us, our work workers, our family members, our neighbors, that they would come to Christ as well. And if you're like me, usually you're put in situations sometimes where about two hours after that conversation, you sit there and you go, wow, why didn't I say this? Why did I say that? And you walk away regretfully. And you walk away kind of with a lump in your throat thinking, man, I had the opportunity and I, I was unfaithful. Uh, we all go through that. And a lot of times, especially when you're in any kind of ministry on a full-time basis kind of a thing, we're all in the ministry. But you know what I mean when you're a pastor, an elder, or something like that, you, you kind of feel a little more um, drawn to to be the example of evangelism. And I'll tell you, over the years, it's interesting because you get into ministry and you get plugged into the church and you start doing things with church and church people. You have a tendency to lose contact with the outside world. It happens all the time to pastors. It happens um, regularly. And I've always tried to maintain some kind of outside contact outside of the church, whether it's the chaplain program or hanging out at the coffee shop or uh, most recently driving Uber once in a while. It's kind of fun to do that in the early hours of the morning. And uh, it's really an opportunity to share your faith. And um, it's pretty amazing. The conversation usually goes like this. They get in the car and, how long have you been driving Uber? I said, oh, not that long. Oh, is this your full-time job? No, it's not my full-time job. Well, what do you do? Well, I work here in the Bay Area. Well, what, 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 what's your profession? I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor of a church. Oh, really? And then that opens up the door for me to share the faith of Christ with them, usually on a 20, 25-minute ride to one of the airports. And um, I'll tell you, I've given out a lot of church cards, given out a lot of tracts doing that. And it's really been uh, a rewarding brief time of the day when I can have that 
planned agenda that when they get in the car, they just think they're getting in another Uber ride. <laughs> but little do they know that I have something on my heart I'd like to share. And so we all need to think strategically sometimes how we can best share the gospel. I remember when I first came here, I thought of trying to learn how to become a, what do they call it, those people at the Starbucks, Bahista or Beast or whatever? Yeah, barista. barista, there you go. And, uh, you know, I was going to Starbucks and, what do you want? You know, I'll have a small, oh, you mean a, a venti or what? No, no, I want a small or a medium or a large. I don't use their terminology, so it always irritates them. But anyway, um, you know, I thought about doing that because I thought, what an opportunity you know, to maintain that relationship with people who don't know Christ. But we should all be thinking that way. We, th- should, we should be thinking strategically. And so through this series over the next couple of weeks, I want to first of all focus on the motivation. What's our motivation to share Christ with others? Why would we want to do that? Secondly, I want to focus on the message itself. Because unfortunately, today in the world we live, the message of the gospel has gotten polluted. The message of the gospel is no longer the true gospel a lot of times. It's a gospel that says, well, Jesus wants you happy and healthy and wise and all these things, and he's there to meet your felt needs. Well, that's not the gospel as recorded in the scriptures. It's definitely not the gospel of Christ. And so we want to go over the message of the gospel, and then we want to talk a little bit about methodology, finally. But today I want to talk about motivation. So I I thought I'd turn to Matthew chapter 9. If you're there, you can follow along as I read this for us. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. And here Jesus is speaking of the harvest being plentiful, the laborers are few. And so follow along as I read Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, we see here that these, these verses deal with Jesus' reaction when he comes into contact with people who are most likely outside of these synagogues. You know, he was teaching in synagogues, but as he traveled throughout the villages, it says he went throughout all the cities and villages, and he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. I mean, can you imagine to be alive back in Jesus' time? Time And if you had an affliction, all you had to do is get in his way, and he would heal you. I mean, that was an amazing time to live in. But when we look at these verses, C.H. Spurgeon talked about verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Um, in one of his messages, he talked about how that verse, verse 38, is one of the verses in the Bible that weighs on his heart more than any other. And I thought, really? And you can see his motivation when he thinks that. He says, it haunted him. 
That verse haunted him perpetually. Is he praying earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest? And we need to see Jesus, we need to see these folks as Jesus saw them. We need to feel what Jesus felt, and we also need to do what Jesus did. And so that's going to be our brief outline for today. But verse 35 gives us a summary of Jesus' ministry at that time. It's identical to Matthew chapter 4, verse uh, 23. He was going throughout all those villages, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And then in verses 36 to 38, we, he reports specific uh, kind of an incidents on one of those occasions when Jesus saw the crowds, it says, perhaps as they approached him. People were always flocking to Jesus because they had ailments. They wanted to have healing take place. They wanted their needs met. And it seems so much different than our society today where, where people are running from Christ. You know, they, they don't want anything to do with them. But back then it was, it was totally different. And it says that he felt compassion and he gave the disciples his uh, charge here. So the first thing here we want to look at briefly is we need to see as Jesus saw. Now, Jesus and the disciples saw the same thing. Jesus wasn't able to supernaturally see these people differently, okay? He, he looked at these people, and it says that there was a crowd approaching. And when these crowds would approach the disciples, you know, what they knew that meant was, oh, wow, we're, we're in here for a time now. Um, there were several occasions throughout the scriptures where the crowds would approach Jesus, and he he would teach them and spend time with them and provide needs for them for hours on end to the point where the disciples got to the point where they would even say, can't we just send these people away, <laughs> right? They were, they were just tired. And so Jesus saw the great need of lost people. He saw the need. He just didn't look on the surface. He saw the great need of lost people. And there may have been a few more sick and disabled people in Jesus' crowd at that time, but no more than there had been in previous days. They were faced with this huge crowd. But in verse 15 of chapter 14, this is another occasion where these crowds approached. It kind of gives you a little insight into the heart of the disciples. You think these are people that are or just, you know, on fire for God, and boy, they're willing to sacrifice everything. Look at what they say in verse 14. It says, And when he went ashore, in verse 14, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed the sick. Verse 15, Now when it was evening, so all day, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and to buy food for themselves. I mean, can you imagine the heart of a follower of Christ? People are actually getting ministered to, even into the nighttime. And it would be like if we had a, a conference here, and after the conference, we had hundreds of people up here that needed ministered to. And after an hour, somebody says, hey, can't we just send these people away? <laughs> but wait a minute. God brought them here. They have needs. And see, the disciples were looking at different things. They were, they were listening to their own fleshly desires at this point. They thought, just, hey, they're, they're probably hungry. Let's, let's use that as an excuse. Send them into the town to get, get them some food. And we see how that, you know, worked out in, in chapter 14 there. Christ 
provided there. But what, what's interesting is Jesus saw them differently, and he felt compassion. He didn't look at them as just a crowd of people. I think sometimes in the church, we look at people outside the church as just unsaved people. They're people who just, boy, we shouldn't have anything to do with them. The, the Bible says that we should be separate, as he is separate, holy. And so we, we, we just kind of forget about all these lost people outside. And, you know, our church is surrounded by lost people. We have a lost gentleman right across the street here. We need to be praying for him, praying for his salvation. And we have been. And, you know, rather than condemn, we need to reach out gracefully, lovingly. And even if you reach out with your hand and your hand get, get, gets bitten, that's okay. You're doing the right thing for Christ. Years ago, they did a, a survey of seminary students. I thought this was so telling. They took 40 seminary students. They were ministry students. They were going to go into the pastorate. And they gave them... A, uh, they were kind of in their senior year of seminary, and so they had a research project they had to do. And each student was instructed <clears throat> to come up with a message on the Good Samaritan. And at certain times throughout the year, this research pro- project was going on, and the seminary would tell the student, okay, it's time for you to, to give your message, your talk on the Good Samaritan, which they'd been preparing. And so to do that, you need to go over to the auditorium. And they had it all worked out to where there was just one path that led to the auditorium. And so these seminary students would go over, and they're thinking about their message, and they're walking along this path, and guess what they did? They set up some guy that looked like a homeless guy, helpless, kind of maybe drunk. He was, he was an actor, <laughs> and he was in their way purposely. And he said right about the time the seminary student would approach this person, usually he would groan or grunt and fall over and fall down in the path, kind of blocking it. And the research uh, program, it actually found that a lot of these students, more than half of the students, walked right by this guy. What was interesting, even some of the students who were giving their talk on the Good Samaritan actually literally had to step over him. And they did, without even thinking. Now, you stop and you rethink of that story, and you think, wow, how could these students be so hard-hearted to ignore this hurting man? What a horrible example. I would never do such a thing. But... My hunch is that those students really represent us. (laughs) Most of us probably would do the exact same thing if we were in a rush to get somewhere and we had a lot on our mind. Even if we were going to preach on the Good Samaritan, we would step over somebody who's in need to make sure we got there, to do what we had to do to fulfill our duties for our class or whatever it was. They were so preoccupied with themselves and the immediate pressure they felt on presenting this talk that they were able to just set aside. Their conscience didn't even bother them. They didn't even stop. But we see here that that Jesus saw the great need of lost people. Um, Jesus saw lost people as distressed. That's what the text tells us. Um, That word means troubled. It means vexed. They have issues. You know, there's, there's sometimes we look at homeless people. 
And, you know, we, we had some homeless people here on the property this morning had to deal with. And they were sleeping. I was trying to wake them up, and they wouldn't wake up. And the one thing that police officer said is you don't wake them up. <laughs> if they're passed out, they're passed out for a good reason. You don't want to go over there and shake them. <laughs> so I ended up having to call the police, and they came out and, and, and dealt with them. But on occasion, you know, we've tried to help some of these folks. And usually, more than not, they don't want your help. You know, they're, they're not interested in anything but you giving them cash or something like that. And, and when you deal with that over and over and over again, what happens? Your heart gets kind of callous. And you're able to look at homeless people just like, ah, whatever. You know, the poor will always be with you. That's what Jesus said. So, oh well. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have compassion. And we shouldn't understand that these people are distressed. Lost people are distressed. And I think that sometimes, even within the church, there are lost people. There are people who are lost who are posing as believers. And then we scratch our head and say, man, what's wrong with that person, you know? And we have an irritated spirit about them. And yet we have to look at them and say, you know what? They're troubled. There's something going on there that maybe we don't see, that only God sees. And maybe God brought them here for a purpose, for a reason. And so Jesus saw lost people as distressed. If you're ever out in public, you go to the mall or you go to an amusement park, you go to somewhere where you can look at people. There's a lot of people who are just stressed in life. There's just a lot of stuff going on in people, people's hearts. And the slightest little thing can set them off. Uh, there's a lot of troubled people out there that need the gospel. Well, secondly, Jesus not only saw people as distressed, but he saw them as dispirited. Um, here in, in, in chapter 9, it, it says he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless. They were with, uh, like a sheep without a shepherd. All right? They were downcast. They were thrown down. It points really to the utterly helpless and forsaken condition of someone who is lost in their sin without a Savior. And we need to be reminded of that. These people aren't just here on earth to get in our way and be inconveniences to us as we make our way to church. These are people who need desperately to hear the life-changing gospel of Christ. Uh, Most of you have probably read The Shepherd's Look at the Psalm 23 of Philip Keller. And he tells in that book... How when a sheep gets turned over on its back, it cannot right itself. It will just sit there and go back and forth, and, and eventually it will die if someone doesn't come and physically turn it back over and put it back on its feet. They're called cast or cast down sheep. Um, and they just kind of flail there, and usually they become a victim of a wolf or something like that because they can't run because they're not on their It's kind of like a turtle on its back almost. Uh, They can't get back on their own feet without the aid of a shepherd. And that's how we have to look at lost people, beloved. We can't look at lost people as, well, you know, they're just weird. No, we have to look at them and say, you know what? They need someone to come alongside of them and help them out of that condition. Um, I mean, that's a picture of sinners apart from the good shepherd. The good shepherd is Christ. Outwardly. Most of the people in this world may look calm. They may look comfortable. Your neighbors with the two cars in the garage and the nice house, they may look fine on the outside, but you know what? They're troubled. If they don't know Christ, they're troubled to their very soul. And Jesus sees their hearts that way. They're basically legs up. They're without Christ. And they're able, unable to pull themselves out of their sin. 
And so that's why God has left us here. They may look normal outwardly, but inwardly, they are as, as Paul describes them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He describes unbelievers <clears throat> as people without hope and without God in the world. Without hope and without God in the world. Can you imagine being without hope? The idea that you have no hope at all, that you're lost in your sin continually, and there's no hope for you ever to be saved. I mean, what a horrible condition to be in. And that's where God has come along and he's provided Christ to save us out of that condition. So Jesus saw people as distressed. He saw them as dispirited. And he also saw people without a shepherd. That's what it says there. Uh, Jesus' religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, would have been in charge of shepherding these people, pointing them to God. But instead, what were they doing? The Pharisees of the day were self-righteous. They were self-indignant. They were self-seeking. And they even looked down on the common people. As a matter of fact, it was against their whole regulations even to have contact with somebody who was a sinner because that would make them unclean, and they wouldn't want to do that. So they would walk literally on the other side of the road if you saw someone who was not righteous like you were. Uh, They were also fleecing the flock, They weren't shepherding them with compassion. They were taking advantage of them. And that's what you see a lot today, unfortunately, through the Word of Faith movement and things like that. It all ends with the almighty dollar, and they're just looking for another dollar to build another mansion or buy another jet. And people give it to them. It's just kind of crazy. They viewed the people as a bother. It's like, oh, those common people, we don't want to have anything to do with them. You know, we just want them to go away. But Jesus viewed them as what? A sheep needing a shepherd. There was a news article years ago. It was a young father named Jamie Lee, and he shot himself right in the head in a, in a uh, bar phone booth. And minutes before he committed this act of suicide, he had called a reporter at the local small-town newspaper, and he told him that he had sent the paper an envelope outlining his story. And so the frantic reporter tried to trace the call, but it was too late, and when the police arrived, the young man was slumped over in the phone booth with a bullet through his head. In his pockets was a child's crayon drawing. It was folded. It was worn. On it was written this, Please leave in my coat pocket. I want to have it buried with me. The drawing was assigned, was signed in childish print by the man's daughter. Shirley was her name. She had died in a fire five months before. And the father was so grief-stricken that he had asked total strangers, he went out outside the funeral home to ask total strangers to come in and attend his daughter's funeral because they didn't have any family so that she would have a nice funeral when she died in the fire. There was no family because Shirley's mom had died when the child was only two. So when he called the reporter just before he took his life, Lee said all he had in life was gone. And he felt so alone. 
You know, when you hear that heartbreaking story, we run into people every day, beloved, that are alone, that don't have anyone. Now, they may not be running up to you saying, please talk to me, but they are alone. And they feel that their life is gone, their their life is a waste. And we need to make sure that we are doing, with our due diligence, reaching out to these people. Um, Because I most of the people here in this room, well, if I would have known that guy, I'm sure I would have reached out to him. I would have helped him through this time of grief. Many of you are that way. We all are. But here's the problem. If we only knew. Hurting people don't walk around with a big sad smiley face or a sad face on their forehead. It doesn't work that way. The only way to know if someone's hurting is to what? Is to rub shoulders with them, to get up close to them, to to get to know them, take the time. Because we have probably even here this morning in this small group hurting people. People who are dealing with things that maybe they're afraid to share. But you know what? If we don't take time to spend time together as the body of Christ and then even out throughout the neighborhood, we're not going to know who's hurting and who's not. And sometimes I feel when we come together on Sunday mornings, we just run to our little group of friends and we step over the hurting people it's just so we can get and, and talk with whoever we're comfortable talking to. When sometimes maybe we need to be a little more proactive and say, wow, have I ever talked to that person before? And if I haven't, why haven't I? Why don't I sit down around a meal with them in the Fellowship Hall one Sunday rather than just always sitting with the same group of people? And that's not a guilt thing. We all do that. I do the same thing. But I'm just saying we need to be reminded that Jesus saw these people as distressed. He saw them as dispirited. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. You know, the one thing we need to remind ourselves is that the people outside of this building are not the enemy. (laughs) They're victims of the enemy. They're victims of Satan. And we are here left with this life-giving message of the gospel, and we need to make sure that we're sharing it. Well, the second thing here is Jesus saw not only the people as distressed and dispirited, saw them without a shepherd, but he also saw the great harvest of lost people. This is what it says in verse 37 there. It says, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. This was an important principle that Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp. He wanted them to understand this. On another occasion, after speaking with the Samaritan women at the well, you remember in John 4.35, he told the disciples, lift up your eyes and look onto the fields, for they are what? White for the harvest. In other words, it's ready. These people need help. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. We need to lift our eyes. We need to look up. There's so many people today. I see them all the time. Just, you know, even downtown Redwood City. You know, here's how they walk like this. You know, they got their little device and, you know, they, they're running into each other. I mean, there's some cities are even making, you know, handheld devices illegal. You can't do them when you're walking because people are getting hit by cars, all kinds of things. But, you know, you go out to dinner and you see two people. I mean, my wife and I have done this on occasion. We're both sitting there with our phones. It's like, okay, put these things away. Communicate. You know, what a lost art. Um, So many times when we have issues with somebody, well, I'll just text them. Don't text them. Pick up the phone and call them. Say, hey, I need to talk to you. Let's meet somewhere and we'll talk. 
do it face-to-face. If you can't do it face-to-face, do it over the phone. Don't write an email. Don't text. That's the last resort. Why? Because what happens? You misread it. You don't know the intention. You're just reading words on a page. So you begin to read this maybe critical text, and you're going, oh, 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 I wonder what they meant by that. They probably meant this. And pretty soon, you're, you're so ticked off, you would never talk to this person again. And they're just trying to help. They're just trying to provide some guidance. But it would have been better if they would have come and met with you so you can look at the person in the face, in the eyes, in the gestures when you're talking. Because words don't tell us those things. But So we need to look up and see that the harvest is plentiful. That's what Jesus saw here, the great harvest of lost people. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul was uh, going on to, to preach in Corinth... He, he was, the Lord kind of told him in uh, verse, eight, or verse 10 of chapter 18 of Acts, for I have many people in this city. Now, Corinth was not a, by any means a Christian city. I mean, to Corinthianize was to, to, to be involved in illicit relationships. I mean, that's the kind of reputation they had. It was not a good place to be. And Paul was fearful of this place because he thought, wow, if they beat me up over here, if I go to this godless place, what are they going to do? Um, And so God explained to him, no, I have many people in this city. You know, we often hear on the peninsula here less than four, maybe three to four percent of people go to any church, any church. That's the Catholic church, the Mormon church, Jehovah Witness, everybody. Of the population, less than three to four percent go to church. Um, and we look around and we say, well, does the Lord have many people in this city? Does he have many people yet to be saved? There's a harvest that's waiting to be reaped. And you know what? The good thing is it doesn't depend on our technique. It doesn't depend on, on what kind of track we're using or how good we are at presenting the gospel. What does it depend on? It depends on God's sovereign purpose. That's what God told him. I have many people in this city. You don't know who they are, Paul. You just go and you preach the gospel. And we'll draw them to ourselves, uh, God says, basically. He's planned a harvest, and he calls us to get involved as the reapers of the harvest. Um, When we hear people kind of reject the gospel, maybe you've gone out and you've shared your faith and they've rejected it. So we just, oh, that didn't work. I guess I'll just never do that again. That was kind of embarrassing. Um, They wouldn't want to hear about Christ anyway. We don't know. We don't know what's going on in somebody's life. I mean, sometimes I've, you know, spent years trying to just build a relationship with somebody. And then it was interesting, just out of the blue the other day, get a call, I get a text from one of the guys in the coffee shop. He said, hey, are you at the coffee shop? I'm like, yeah, I'm always at the coffee shop. I'm here right now. <laughs> and then he called me right away. And he goes, Dad, I hate to ask you. Because I know you're really, really busy. I'm like, well, what? Do you think maybe you could swing by my house, pick me up, and take me back to the, the ER at uh, Sequoia? I had to leave my truck there last night. I go, Why'd you leave your truck? Well, I, had to go, I had to go in for some. He just retired, and he's having some medical issues. I said, sure, I'll be right over. Well, you know, no, so he's apologizing. I said, no, that's fine. But you know what? 
to be honest, part of me is thinking, man, I just sat down here. This is my routine every day. I mean, you know, I got this nice hot cup of coffee here. Now I got to go get a cup. I don't like cup or lids on the coffee. I just, all this stuff started well. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what am I thinking? And, you know, it just was a thought in my head. I'm not saying I yielded to it, luckily. So I got in my car and I went over and got him. And, and I said, well, you coming? Oh, I got to go home, you know. So I was able to say a little prayer with him and send him on his way. But I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. I mean, why did he call me? You know, this is kind of weird. But God has those kind of things planned for us. And we don't know what God is doing in that person's heart. So he saw the, the need there. And then third thing, Jesus saw the great need for workers of the harvest. He saw the great harvest of lost people. But he also said, there, hey, you need workers. The workers are few. So many times in our theology, especially with the doctrines of grace and, and election and the sovereignty of God, we have a tendency to sit back in our little armchairs of grace and say, well, God's got it all worked out anyway, so I'm not going to do anything. Right? Why share my faith? If they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. That's the wrong mentality to have. That's actually, I would say, a sinful mentality because the Bible instructs us to do just the opposite. He said to go in all the world, make disciples, preach the gospel baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when you stop and you think about that, that's totally antithetical to what Christ's command for us to do is. So we have to guard ourselves. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does he save people? Yes. But that should even motivate us to do this more because he's the one that's going to do it, not us. And we just need to share this message. So he said the workers are few. Now, he changes here. He changes the metaphors. First, he's talking about sheep. You notice this in these couple verses? But now what's he talking about? He's talking about a harvest. He's talking about farming kind of stuff. And so those, those two examples show different sides of the matter. The sheep and the shepherd show man's need that is met by God. You see that? It shows man's need that is met by God. The good shepherd says, seeks out lost sheep and ministers to them. Well, what's the harvest show? The harvest and the workers show, now listen, God's need met by man. He says, the workers are few. What's he saying? I need some workers. I need some people that I am going to use in this process of salvation. God uses saved people to save other people. We don't do the saving. God does, but he does it through us. Don't ever believe. Don't let your your theology come to the point where you come fatalistic. Well, I'm not going to do anything. Because, you know, God chose before the foundation of the world, which is true, those who are going to be saved. And, you know, in the end, he's going to work it all out. So I'm just going to kind of ride this wave of grace into eternity. That would be sinful. Why? Because God did not save you to sit. God did not save you to be a spectator. Why did God save you? To be part of the process, to be a link in the chain, to be part of this wonderful grand imitation of the gospel, to be a participant, not to be passive. And it doesn't matter whether you're young or you're old. We're all surrounded by people. And people have needs. 
And Jesus is saying, I want to use you as saved people, people that have a proper understanding of me and the message of the gospel, and you know that you're saved. I want you to take this message out to a lost and dying world each and every day in the way you live, in the way you speak, the way you present yourself. And so Jesus' viewpoint is that of a farmer who had this great crop that's ready to be harvested. But he doesn't have enough workers. He doesn't have enough reapers. On the one hand, the Lord will accomplish all of his purpose, the scriptures tell us, which include the salvation of his elect, Ephesians 1. And yet at the same time, he has chosen to save lost people through those whom he has already saved. We would never come up with a plan like this. This is God's plan. Um, I mean, he could have just used a bunch of angels. He didn't have to use us. This is a liability on his part. I mean, how many times have we messed up the gospel message when we're out there trying to share it with somebody? Or maybe our lives aren't living up to what he has called us to do. I mean, angels could have definitely been more competent than we are, but he chose to use us. And so the plentiful harvest means that there is a need for more workers. Here's the message, really. If you're one of Jesus' sheep, he wants you to see yourself as a worker in his harvest. Notice it's his harvest. It's not by accident that the very next thing in gospel's message is for Jesus to summon the twelve and appoint them to ministry. That's what he does. Up to this point, Jesus has done all the ministering. Well, his, what his disciples do? They just stood there and watched, pretty much. But now, he says, okay, I'm not going to be here for all eternity. I'm just here for a little more time. So I, I need to turn some of this over to you. So rather than just watching, now what are you going to do? You're actually going to get involved in this process. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm not called to full-time ministry. There's no such thing as full-time ministry. We're all in ministry. Yeah, some get paid by the church to do it as a regular thing. But whether you're paid by the church or not, you're still called as believers to be involved in ministry. You're not called to spectate. You're not called to sit there and watch others do this. See, and that doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. It, that, that's not an excuse. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you better be involved in some kind of ministry. Those who have tasted of God's salvation tell others what he has done for their, their soul. So to be like our Savior, we need to see as Jesus saw the great need of lost people, the great harvest of lost people, the great need for more workers in the harvest of lost people. But then, secondly here, we need to feel as Jesus felt. In verse 36, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. He felt compassion. It's used frequently about Christ in the Gospels. It's related to a noun meaning inward parts. You could say, you know what, it's talking about your gut. That's what this is talking about. You feel it deep down inside. Have you ever been watching a movie and you just touched or you're listening to a song and you're touched? And you, I mean, even sometimes leading worship, I'll be at the piano. It's like, I have to stop singing because I'm getting emotional. And I'm not an emotional guy. 
But somehow God is, is working through the words of the song, and it's just becoming too emotional for me. So I just got to focus on playing the right notes. So I feel like I'm going to start crying, which would be a disaster because I don't cry that easy. I mean, it's just crazy. But sometimes God does that. And that's what I mean. It, you feel it down here. See, that's the kind of feeling. That's the kind of passion. That's the kind of understanding we need for these lost people. Um, you know, he said he saw the people. He didn't get angry. He didn't blame them for the mess they're in. Oh, they're out here in the wilderness. Now what are we going to do? Rather, he felt compassion for him. Ask yourself this question. Do you feel compassion for sinners? Or do we just kind of shrug them off and say, you know what? It's their fault. Um, I read this story this past week, and I thought it was great. It was about a pastor who was pretty bold in his pulpit. And he got up and he began to preach his message, and he said, I'm going to make three points today. The first point is simply this. There are millions of people around the world who are dying and going to hell. He paused. And he said, my second point is this. Most of us sitting here today don't give a damn. Paused a little longer. And he said this. My third point is that you are more concerned as I, your pastor, uttered the word damn in this pulpit than you are about a million people going to hell. Now, I don't think we should use vulgarity, but I think his point is well taken. See, that's a way of tricking us. How we get worked up over very trivial things, insignificant things, We should feel as Jesus felt about lost people. The story of a lady who went to Tunis in North Africa, mostly Muslim country, and she tried to reach Muslims for Christ, and so she started teaching kids English and stuff like that, and just utter failure as far as people coming to Christ. They They would come to her to hear her lessons about English, but that was it. And she would share the gospel every time, and they'd be polite, but they'd say, no, thank you. (laughs) And one boy, she says, that she ministered to for years, finally was at the point where he was going away to college. And she persisted with this young man, constantly sharing the gospel. And he came every week for his English lessons. And as he learned more and more English, she was able to tell him more of the gospel, but every time he was just unmoved. He just wouldn't even budge. Finally, the summer was over. He was going away to university. They were ready to drop the English lessons. And one day, just before his departure, he came to say goodbye to this missionary one final time. They had tea together, and she told him once again of the love of Christ for the millionth time. And while he was polite, he was adamant in resisting the gospel of Christ. And at last he bid farewell, and he headed down this little path through the garden, leading to the gate outside her yard. And he stopped, and he looked back. And he saw his teacher standing in the doorway, looking after him 
with tears just running down her face. We couldn't resist any longer. Her tears conquered the rebellion in his heart. And he returned up the path. And he sat in her living room and trusted in Christ. See, beloved, sometimes emotion is not bad. (laughs) We don't want to be driven by our emotions. But sometimes God uses our emotions. And most of you know I am not drawn to tears easily. But you know what? People have a way of knowing whether or not you care about them. And sometimes, you know, not being emotional is not a friend. (laughs) Because you can be in a very traumatic situation, and if you're not emotional, you can deal with the situation. Just, you know, you just kind of get used to dealing with things like that. But sometimes that sends a message you don't want to care. You don't care. And so you have to be careful. We need to see needy people as Jesus saw them. And he... He felt compassion. We need to feel that compassion as Jesus felt. Third thing, we need to do as Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He ministered to people's needs. He prayed for more workers. Um, Jesus ministered to the spiritual and the physical needs. Uh, Ministry is not some stained glass word that is used only for those who go into professional ministry or whatever you want to call it. Ministry basically means service. It means serving one another. Every Christian is called to serve. Every Christian is called to minister. We all have unique gifts. We all have God-given abilities. And we need to make sure that we're using them within the body of Christ and without the body of Christ, frankly, for the glory of God. And so you notice how Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry in verse 35. It says he was teaching. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then he was healing every kind of disease and sickness. See, not everyone is gifted to preach publicly, but some of you do a lot better one-on-one with people than I would ever even dream of doing, or in a group of people. Uh, We're all gifted in different ways, but we should be able to share our testimony and proclaim the gospel to those who have yet to hear. Um, If you're friend makes a comment about God or about Jesus or eternal life that is contrary to Scripture, then use that opportunity to say, well, why do you think that? You know, you don't have to turn on them and unload the, the whole Bible on them, but just say, well, where'd you get that perspective? Why do you believe that? Um, and so we need to make sure that we're being diligent as we do these things. And then secondly, Jesus prayed for more workers Uh, The text does not say that Jesus prayed for more workers. It says there that he commanded the disciples to pray for workers. So my question is, are we praying for workers? Um, But once again, would Jesus have asked his disciples to do something that he wouldn't do? I don't think so. So I think Jesus did pray for more workers. Luke chapter 6, verses 12, 13 tells us that before Jesus called the 12 apostles, he spent the entire night in prayer. Surely, he was asking the Father for workers for the harvest. But whether he prayed for workers or not, we are commanded to pray. I just simply ask you, do you do that? Do you ask God to send forth workers? Do you pray that God would raise up and send out workers from the churches here on this peninsula, our church, other churches? 
Do we pray for our missionaries? Let me tell you, when you start to pray for more workers, it's very dangerous. Because sometimes God answers that prayer in ways that you cannot imagine. Many years ago, there was a well-known pastor by the name of Dr. Ledgers. He was walking down the street with $50 in his pocket. He met a missionary home on furlough. And they said, Dr. Letters, would you, uh, it's kind of providential that we met here. We're having an urgent prayer meeting for one of our missionaries. Uh, We'd love to have you join us. He was somewhat reluctant, but he did. He went into the the prayer and he said, uh, you know, let's not pray out of ignorance. Let's pray out of intelligence. What exactly do you need? And the missionary replied, we have an urgent financial need for $50. (laughs) And he said, that's fine, that's fine, let's pray. And they prayed all the way around the circle. And when they got through, one missionary said, I don't feel that we've really laid hold of the Lord in this. Let's pray some more. So they prayed around the circle a second time and then a third time. And finally the doctor said that God spoke to him, kind of in the quietness of his own heart, obviously. But he said, what about the $50 in your pocket? So he stopped a woman in the middle of her prayer and simply said, hold it, God answered the prayer. (laughs) And he pulled out the $50 and he laid it on the table. When he told about this, the doctor pointed his finger at the congregation and said, ladies and gentlemen, it's a dangerous thing to pray. See, sometimes God may have you as the answer to your own prayer. So what's our motive in getting involved in evangelism? Evangelism is rather simple. Our motive is the great love of our Savior who came to the sinful world, who saw a great need of lost people, who felt compassion for them, who served them with the good news of salvation. If you've experienced that salvation today, then... You need to ask yourselves, are you doing what Jesus did? Are you feeling as Jesus felt? Are you willing to reach out 